It's no secret that we live in a politically charged age. That's a bit of an understatement, isn't it? On both sides of the political spectrum, distrust of the government, if not an outright rejection of authority, has become the norm. In a world of riots, capital raids, scandals, deep-seated corruption, conspiracy theories, and public debates that resemble a back-alley knife fight, the distrust is understandable. Christians have not been immune to this tension. Trust me, I pastored through those two years of chaos in 2020, 2021, and the beginning of 2022. And I had many people at my fire pit asking questions about politics and, and, and what we're to do uh, with such a crazy government and economy and this nation that it seems to be unfringing and unraveling. These questions have crept into the church just as they have everywhere else. Namely, how should Christians view the government? How should we live under governmental authority? These are questions that Paul seeks to answer in Romans chapter 13, as he explains not only the role the government should play, but our responsibility in submitting to it. Now, before we dive in, a small disclaimer is necessary. Paul is not trying to answer all of our questions about the government in this text. He's just not going to do that. To do that, we would need to spend hours surveying what the whole Bible says about governments and kings and our duty as civilians. But as it pertains to Romans, Paul's goal is to emphasize how the gospel applies in our attitude toward human governments. Once again, he shows that the gospel cannot be compartmentalized. The gospel does not just belong in our nice and pretty little church buildings or in the clearly spiritual aspects of life. The gospel breaks out. It invades and permeates our entire life, our jobs, our families, our friendships, and yes, the way we speak about our president. It invades all of it. You realize when Christ made us his own, every inch of our lives became his. Don't know if anybody told you that, but when you believed in Jesus Christ, all of life became his. Either he is king of every aspect of your life, including how you act and talk about your leaders, or you have failed to comprehend just how expansive and all-encompassing his reign really is. In Romans 13.1, Paul gives a very simple imperative. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Now notice here that Paul doesn't give many qualifications, does he? He doesn't give many nuances. He simply states that every person is to be subject to the governing authorities. Now, notice the scope of his imperative. The phrase every person means you, means me. Whether you like who's in power or not, that every person, Christian and non-Christian without exception, needs to be subject to the governing authorities. I think it's also important to see that Paul makes no qualification when it comes to what type of government we are to subject ourselves. In other words, he doesn't say uh, be subject to the governing authorities only if you live in a democracy. Nor does he say be subject to the governing authorities only if your preferred president sits in the White House. 
His simple command is, be subject to the governing authorities, whoever's in power. This applies to Christians whether they live in democracies, like America, communistic governments like China, autocratic societies, monarchies, or any other form of government. The imperative applies, imperative applies to people who live in China, Russia, Britain, or the United States. It applies to you whether there is a Democrat, a Republican, or an independent serving as president. Be subject to the governing authorities. Now, before anyone foolishly suggests that Paul had no clue what kind of political world we would live in, remember that when he wrote this, which was AD 57, Nero was emperor in Rome. The same Nero who less than a decade later would cut Paul's head off. That same Nero. Now, Nero's early years were relatively fine. They were kind of quiet. But then his policies quickly revealed him to be a megalomaniac that had psychotic tendencies. I mean, some believe that he's the one that started the fire in Rome because he got bored. There's a theory, a legend going around that he played the fiddle on his roof while Rome burned. I mean, this guy is psychotic. Still, even with Nero on the throne, a psychopath, megalomaniac on the throne, Paul maintains that Christians are to be subject to the Roman government. Don't tell Paul he doesn't know what it's like to live in politically tense age. And what's more is Paul was not the only Christian leader who taught this. Peter was living in Rome too before he was executed by Nero. Around that time, around the time that he wrote 1 Peter, just a few years later, Peter's going to be crucified upside down on a cross at Nero's edict. He had personally witnessed Nero's madness. He saw what it was like for his brothers and sisters, his fellow Christians to be gored and eaten alive in Colosseums. He saw what it was like for their bodies to be lit on fire to provide light at night. He saw all of that, and still he writes, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme. Who do you think he's talking about there? Or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good, here, Peter explicitly refers to emperor, the emperor, the emperor Nero, and tells them, be subject to every human institution. Now, what does it mean to be subject? To be subject means to submit or to recognize and live respectfully under the authority of another. Okay? Obviously, in telling us to be subject to the government, Peter and Paul are not recommending us to agree with everything the government does or agree with its policies when those policies go against God's command. In fact, when the governing bodies in the Sanhedrin told Peter and the apostles to stop preaching the gospel, they answered, we must obey God rather than man. Sometimes God's explicit commands and the government's agenda diverge and they go in two completely opposite ways. And during those moments, we must choose to obey God over man. However, even in these moments, that command to be subject to the governing authorities still stands. A godless government 
with godless policies does not negate another command in Scripture that says to be subject to the governing authority. So how do we do that? How do we stay faithful to God in, in the midst of a godless government while at the same time being subject to the government? How do you do that? That's a dilemma, right? Well, I think we can take our cues from church history, from the people who actually lived in truly hostile governments and societies. First, we must remain respectful of our leaders even if we disagree with them. You must remain respectful. Reading through Acts, one thing you notice is that every time Christians are confronted by hostile authorities, they remain absolutely reverential to those whom they speak. In Acts 4, when Peter and, Apostle, Peter and the apostles were first brought before the council, which was led by Annas and Caiaphas. Does anybody know who those two names are? Annas and Caiaphas are the same high priest and priest who condemned Jesus to the cross and then led the mob to call out for his crucifixion. Now, you would think if anybody does not deserve respect, it's these two guys. And yet... How does Peter address them? And the apostles, they they address them as rulers of the people and elders. They call them by their title. These are rulers of the people and elders. Yes, they condemned Jesus to death. And yes, they're in large part the reason he was crucified. But still, they remain respectful and reverential. Though these men were the very men who crucified their Savior, these apostles still recognize their authority and live reverentially underneath it. They don't stir up mobs to kill them. When Stephen was dragged before the high priest, probably the same high priest who killed Jesus and his cohorts, he referred to them reverentially as brothers and fathers. You can read that in Acts chapter 7, verse 1. And then you get Paul in Acts chapter 25. Boy, Paul's one of my favorites. If anybody had the intellectual acumen to be able to slay these leaders, I mean, it's him, right? He could just embarrass them. And he stands before Agrippa, the same Agrippa that probably had Herod Agrippa, who had James killed and beheaded. Paul stands before Agrippa, and you don't see him. When he stands before Agrippa, you don't see him wearing a T-shirt saying, not my king. He stands before him, and he says, King Agrippa. Who's his king? Christ, Jesus. And yet the kingship of Christ doesn't deny the fact that Paul must still show respect and reverence to King Agrippa. Jesus put Agrippa on the throne, so Paul respects him as King Agrippa. Now we see this pattern in scripture, and it's something that we as an American church have lost. This pattern of respect, reverence, in the face of hostile leaders, sets the standard for how we are to respond to our leaders, even if we don't like them. The early church simply had no category for believers who publicly mocked, who posted outlandish, crazy things on social media, who chanted, let's go Brandon in churches, who talk about not my president, They had no category for that. If you want to know what's new in this age, it's a church that doesn't know how to respect governing authorities. What is the norm is a church that knows how to live in and respect and suffer in hostile governments. 
we, being the comfortable American church, have somehow thought it's our right to get up and cuss out presidents and senators. That is relatively new, and it's rebellious, as we'll see in Romans 13. God doesn't bless that. It simply is not the way. There are times to resist the government. We'll talk about that here in a minute. But it's not through disrespect and being irreverent when addressing our leaders and those that, even leaders that are opposed to God and the gospel. We acknowledge and must acknowledge, and we'll see why here in a minute. If someone makes it to the White House, we must acknowledge that God has put them on the throne. God has put them in the White House. We'll see that here in a minute. And you can disagree with Paul in the text. But this whole nonsense about not my president or whatever, he is, and God did that. And if you oppose that, you may be opposing God himself. It's far better for you to live in respect and reverence and be willing to suffer under a godless president than to live in ignorance. Unbiblical ignorance. So, live reverently, live respectfully. Second, we respect our leaders by being committed to the Bible and to the Bible's teaching. You know, we had a space issue in this worship center about two months ago. I don't think we're going to have that problem next week. So, typically, when it comes to political leaders, we either give them our wholesale approval or we just wholesale reject them, don't we? I mean, it's either yes or no when it comes to political leaders. However, being a thoroughly biblical thinker requires more than partisan approval or rejection. As Paul demonstrates in Romans 13, human governments are God's good gift to bring justice on wrongdoing. They don't always do it perfectly, but they're God's good gift. But even in the fact that they are God's good gift to judge wrongdoing and to uh, reward good, there are times that even our favorite leaders fail Likewise, there are times that many bad leaders make good decisions. In such moments, I find it best to be honest about what Scripture has to say. You know, I lived in the days, and I, and I thought I was way too young to pastor through this. I lived in the days where people would mock Biden for sniffing hair and totally ignore Trump for his sexual immorality. I've lived through the days where one political candidate's whole agenda has been bought into and another's completely rejected, instead of thinking through, what does the gospel tell us to believe and do? You see, to be biblically thorough Christians, to be biblically faithful Christians, we don't just reject or accept. Instead, we don't look at things from partisan politics. We think about it in the terms of scripture. What does the Bible say about this person's actions? And sometimes it's yes, yes, no, I have no idea. That's sometimes how we look at political agendas. A Democrat wants to increase support for orphans. Yes, that's what scripture says. Love the orphan. A Republican has sexual immorality. Boo to that. Don't do that. That's sin. Nothing, nothing crumbles the church's testimony like believers trying to cover up their favorite political candidates' sins. You wonder why the world mocks the church today? 
Because we've learned to turn a blind eye to some people and we're more than willing to spotlight the sins of another. The same sins that we spotlight are the sins found in our own political camp. My friends, can I just tell you something? The church is not called to be partisan. The church is called to be prophetic. Here's the problem in our day and age. The church has thought that it's our job to be partisan. We stand for a party. We lobby for a party instead of being prophetic. You see, there's a better way than being partisan. You can be pro-life. You can say that homosexuality is a sin. And you can also love the sojourner and love the immigrant all at the same time. You want to know why? Because the church doesn't just agree with partisan politics. It's prophetic It agrees with what scripture says. It affirms what must be affirmed. It critiques what must be critiqued, whether it's our favorite leader or not. You see, Nathan, the prophet, modeled this amazingly well. When the king said, I want to build a temple and I want to honor God, Nathan affirmed him. Yes, this is the way, David. And then David slept with Bathsheba. And who was it that called out David's sins? See, we're too busy trying to vote for Saul or vote for David, and we're failing to be Prophet Nathan like we should. He's not called you to be partisan. He's called you to be prophetic. He's called you to, to, to speak openly and honestly about what Scripture says. And when another party that you don't vote for or don't like does something that's biblical, you affirm it. When your own party does something that's sinful and has a policy that's against God's explicit will, you critique it and challenge it like you should. Man, we've got so many red and blue thinkers that we have forgotten what it's like to be kingdom representatives. We're like a third race in a sense, right? Right? We're the true third party. You can't loop us in in a political party that's temporary and this worldly only. No, we're kingdom citizens. You want to know what we stand for? We stand for Jesus' agenda. Which means that when King Jesus makes a command, we stand against our own party when it doesn't go with it. When there's a Republican that, that speaks in an ungodly way, and has agendas that are very sinful. Well, we stand against that just as vehemently as we stand against a Democrat that does the same. Because we're not partisan. We're prophetic. And we wonder why the world's not hearing the gospel clearly. It may be because we're preaching politics. And not preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ like the prophetic people of God that we're called to be. Third, we respect the government by being willing to suffer in obedience to God. This question came up a lot um, in my, around my fire pit. Uh, sometimes the government goes beyond its God-given authority, doesn't it? Sometimes the government makes policies that are against what God has explicitly commanded, doesn't it? That's true. Maybe you say, well, more than sometimes. Maybe it's oftentimes. Well, when that happens, we have no choice but to follow the apostles in saying, we must obey God rather than man. 
When the government does that, we must do that. Now, in this, it's helpful to see how God's people throughout history have responded to the dilemma. When the church was faced with governments, whether it was Nero, whether it was the Catholic French and, and the Huguenots at the, at, at, at the uh, Reformation, where these Huguenots are wanting to obey the word of God and to study scripture and the French government wants to kill them all, how do we live when the government begins passing policies that are against God's word? Shoot them, right? That's not what scripture says. And that's not what you see in the whole span of church history. Church history shows that the way that God's people resist rebellious governments that are anti-God is through suffering. This is October, so Reformation Day is coming on October 31st. So let's listen to how Martin Luther did it. Now, Martin Luther is not the perfect example of how to be a government-respecting sufferer of God, but he does write a lot about it. And because he was a pastor theologian living in hostile government days, I mean, his, he was a wanted man. He was, there's a point in time, he was the world's most wanted man where both king and pope wanted him dead and offered millions of today's dollars to have him killed. So what happens when the government extends its authority and does things and commands us to believe things or do things that we are commanded not to believe and do? Well, he tells us we have to go with God on that. We have to obey God. We have to reject the government's command. We have to reject what the, government's believe, what the government tells us to believe. He even goes so far as giving us a suggested response. He writes out, he said, if you come across a lord or a king who tells you to believe or do something that's against scripture, here's what you should say. My good lord, I, obey, I owe you obedience with my life and goods. Command me what lies within the limits of your authority, and I will obey. But if you command me to believe, and in here he's talking about believing the thing that's anti-God or anti-gospel. If you command me to believe, I will not obey. For then you will have become a tyrant and overreached yourself, commanding where you have neither right nor power. But Luther, what if they continue to insist? What if they pass legislation that... Now you're going to be paying fines. You're going to be imprisoned. You're going to be exiled or maybe even killed. Well, his response might surprise you. He says, evil is not to be resisted, but suffered. I wonder how many Christians in this day and age of America are willing to suffer for righteousness. We talk so much about resisting and revolting and raiding and overthrowing that I think we've forgotten a lot about suffering. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. That is God's normal plan to grow his church is as they suffer for righteousness sake, not kill for it. You may not like that. I know I'm preaching the Texans. I get it. I mean, we're the come and take it crowd, right? I mean, we're, we've been doing this for a long time. And yet, if you want to know what God's will is for Christians, we're not talking about political revolts or political parties. We're talking about you as a believer. Evil's not to be resisted, but suffered, which means there may be a day and age that your belief 
that a baby is actually a human being that deserves to live may cost you a fine. You might be imprisoned someday for saying that homosexuality is a sin. You may be killed someday for believing that Jesus is the only Lord. Now, is there, are you going to put your money where your mouth is? That's the normal way that the church endures. I mean, we have thousands of years of Christian martyrs who lay down their lives. What do you think Irenaeus did when the Roman government came to kill him? Doesn't pick up a dagger and say, only if you can come get past my dagger. He doesn't do that, does he? What about Tyndale? The English king says you can't translate the Bible into English. He does it anyway because he believes that normal English people like us need to be able to read the Bible. He does it anyway. And then the king comes and what does he do? I'm going to kill the king? No. He marches peacefully to the stake and is burned alive. And to this day still speaks louder than that king could ever wish to. You see, we're late to the program, my friends. Our brothers and sisters in China, in Iran, in Africa, and many other places have already gotten the concept that they resist evil governments and do the will of God by suffering. And it's in their suffering that the world sees that, oh, they're serious. How many executioners have watched as God's people were willing to die for the faith, and then they say, we just wanted to scare them out of it. They can't be scared. They can't be shaken. And then there's stories of where even executioners come to Jesus because the person that they're trying to kill doesn't waver. You may not like this. God's will for you is to suffer evil until he comes and takes it away. My friends, we see it over and over in scripture. For some reason, I get the most resistance about this when our conversations go this way. No, God doesn't expect us to do that. God okay, well, what do you do with the book of Daniel? <laughs> Daniel and his cohorts both acknowledged and lived peacefully under their Babylonian Persian emperors. They respected laws. They even dressed like Persians from time to time. They became influential advisors in the public square. They disobeyed where they had to disobey when the, Persian, when the Babylonian government says eat pork, they say, now we'll, we'll do the Daniel plan. And they, they eat veggies. So wherever they could affirm, they affirmed. Wherever they critiqued, they critiqued. And when the king said, you cannot pray to your God or you must bow down to, their, to this other statue or this other God, they didn't incite the people to riot. They didn't try to topple the government. They walked in faith to fiery furnaces and lion's dens. My greatest fear for the church is we have a bunch of Joshua's and not enough Daniel's. And this is a day and age in which we need Daniel's. We need people ready and willing for lion's dens. We need Stephen's ready for stoning. James's ready for beheadings. Tyndale's ready for the stake. To join the cloud of witnesses who suffered 
and became an everlasting testimony and an unquenchable flame for the gospel. There have been so many riots and revolts and and attempted toppling governments throughout history that we've forgotten all of them. We've forgotten many of them. That happens relatively, you know, often in history. But what's unique is there are martyrs who died, who speak louder than the Alamo ever can. There are martyrs who died, who speak louder than the Boston Tea Party. There are martyrs who died who to this day remain the fiery flame for the gospel because they were willing to suffer when the kingdom of the world diverged from the king of heaven's reign. So how do we be subject to governing authorities? When those authorities reject God, we remain respectful. President Biden is your president. I'll tell you why here in just a minute. Will you speak respectfully? We seek to be faithful to the word of God and we are willing to suffer for righteousness. Those are the three ways we'd be subject to the governing authorities in an America that is hostile to the gospel. Respectful, committed to scripture. Boy, a prophetic church, imagine how powerful that would be. That we show up on the scene and people hear what the word of God says, not just what we agree with what the word of God says. And then third, we're willing to suffer. And and if God chooses that we should suffer, scripture tells us to rejoice. That's a weird thing, right? Right? To to rejoice. That's that's odd. Why, Why should we rejoice if God chooses us to suffer? Because we have been counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. That's Acts chapter five, verse 41. Peter tells us that when we suffer, we are to count this a gracious thing. Have you ever thought about that? Fines, imprisonment, exile, even death, grace from God. That's weird. Why? Because it is gracious in the sight of God because it's in that way that we most look like Jesus. Peter writes, For to this you have been called. For Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. You realize it's because we have a savior who subjected himself to the government that we have been saved. If you don't have any greater motivation to subject yourself to the governing authorities, this is it. Your savior did that to save you. We are most like Christ Not when we flex our muscles. When did Jesus ever do that? We're not most like Christ when we tap our pistols. When did Jesus do that? We are most like Jesus when we suffer righteously for obeying God. He subjected himself to all kinds of people he didn't have to. 
the high priest. I mean, seriously, Caiaphas is praying to him. When Caiaphas burns incense, it's in his house. When Caiaphas shouts out blasphemy and uses his hands to tear his robes with hands that Jesus made. He submits himself to his piddly little creation. High priest, rulers like the puppet master, Herod. And that politically weak guy named Pontius Pilate. And he remained as silent as a lamb led to the slaughter as they called for his crucifixion. He obeyed God even to the point of death on the cross. And what was the result? What came from it? What a waste, right? What a waste. He could have showed them all, toppled all their governments. Well, we find out it wasn't a waste because three days later, he was vindicated in a big way. In a way that couldn't have happened had he raised the sword. In a way that couldn't have happened if he called down legions of angels. He was vindicated in a big way. He died at the hands of unjust human rulers. But he rose in glory and in process gave us a foretaste of the great resurrection that's still to come for us. Governments can burn your body. They can take your money. But boy, they can't keep you in the grave. In our world where there are unjust, corrupt governments, we follow Christ our Savior. We look like him. We should look like him, right? We humbly and silently suffer when necessary. And trusting that God will vindicate his people and will raise them up in his own timing. My friends, this is where your faith meets the road. Okay, this is the the brass tacks of your faith is that you trust God with everything, even bad governments. Paul has just told you that we are to submit to our civic governments, but why? He gives a two-part answer. We should be subject to our governing authorities because one, God is the one who put them there. Number two, the government is God's gracious means of restraining evil in the world, for the most part. We'll talk about why that doesn't always happen. We'll look at both of these reasons a little closer, too. After saying that we should sub- subject, be subject to the government, Paul writes, and I, I want all your eyes on the Bible, because everybody thinks somehow I work in a word or two that changes the meaning. I just want you to see it's here. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. Paul said it, not me. His logic's simple. There's no authority except God's authority, right? We all would say yes or no to that. Okay. Number two, if a ruler is in authority, then it is only because the Lord authoritatively declared it to be so for his own sovereign purposes, right? Which means anyone in power is not there by accident. Even the Venezuelan president who might have stole the election is there by the divine will and authority of God. That's his logic there. Whoever's in power 
is only in power because God willed it. Number three, whoever rejects these governing authorities also rejects the authority of God who put them there. You see, God puts kings and princes and presidents and senators and tyrants on thrones for various reasons. Sometimes it's to judge the nation. You know, in Israel, God gave bad kings, idolatrous kings, and raised them up to the throne. Why? To discipline his people. And so by saying, not my king, you might be rejecting God's sovereign purpose in raising up that king. Have you ever thought about that? Not my president. Well, he, he is, if Paul's logic stands. No authority but God. Whoever's in authority is there because God wills it for a sovereign purpose. And if you reject that authority, you reject the authority of God. So he is your president. Putin is the Russian president. Xi Jinping is the legitimate Chinese president. I'm not saying he's good. I lived under his presidency. Dude's bad. But boy, boots on the ground. You should see what a church can do under Xi Jinping's presidency. Oh my goodness. Talk about evangelism and gospel power. Don't tell me there's not a purpose in Xi Jinping reigning. Can you imagine these Roman Christians receiving Paul's letter and they're like, justification by faith, that's great, yeah. And Gentiles are the people of God just like the Jews are. Yeah, we like that. And uh, uh, yeah, and you don't have to be circumcised. Woohoo! amen to that. And they're just going through one by one. Then he gets to Romans 13 and he says, be subject to the government because all authority is from God. So Nero reigns on the throne, not because he just happens to be there, but because God made it so. Nero. You realize nothing happens by accident. He didn't just passively allow Nero to become emperor. He actively ordained it to be so for his own purposes that are beyond our wisdom and sight. He was the legitimate emperor. Why? Because God put him there. Why? I have no idea. All I know is it's from that time of history that we see Christians doing what Christians do best, suffer and live. It's under that kind of government that we see people like Perpetua, the Roman slave girl who died and left her story to inspire the rest of us. We hear about Peter and Paul and the way they put their money where their mouth is and died for the Jesus they loved so much. So it doesn't seem like it was a waste to me. God did something through it. That all authority comes from God's divine authority is a well-established fact in Scripture. Who sent Nebuchadnezzar to Jerusalem? You read the prophets, God is the one that raised up Nebuchadnezzar, put him on the throne, and then sent him marching to Jerusalem. In Daniel chapter 2, verse 21, under this reign of the Nebuchadnezzar that we have all heard about, 
He, he prays, blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings, which means there's a King Nebuchadnezzar. Who has put him there? God. In Daniel chapter four, it is the most high who rules the kingdom of men and gives it to, to whom he will and sets it over the lowliest of men. We see this principle with Jesus before Pilate, don't we? Was Pilate a legitimate ruler to judge Jesus? Well, the answer is no, but also yes. Knowing the fact of Jesus is the high king, prince of heaven, in flesh, but Jesus even acknowledges that Pilate has authority to judge him. Why? When Pilate claimed to have the authority to condemn or to release Jesus, Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. So in Jesus' eyes, did Pilate have legitimate authority? The answer is yes, because it came from above and he would have no authority had it not come from above. I think we must never lose sight of this. We don't just have governments and presidents. We have a God who sits over all of them. We have a God who's not just king of kings and lord of lords, but he's God of the governments. He raises them up, topples them down. He makes nations and he swallows up nations. He eats kings and queens for breakfast. He raises up poor people like Mao Zedong to power. Why? For his own sovereign purposes so that he can accomplish his purpose and will for us, which is culminating in a table feast under his one and only king. Sometimes in our fear or in our anger, we forget that truth. We act as if it's all in the line right now. I totally think we should vote. I totally think we should engage in politics. There are people who have misheard me through the years. I totally believe we should. I just think we should knowing that it doesn't really rest on us. When I cast my vote, I'm not going, oh, I hope I don't screw this one up. I'm a limited human being. I don't know these guys. I've never sat down with them. When I vote, I do so knowing that God's going to put who he wants on the throne. Why? Because he's God. Did my vote somehow negate his sovereignty? There's this responsibility and sovereignty that go together here. Should I vote? Yes, I should vote. As long as there's someone to vote for. I should vote. I should vote with godly principles. I should vote like a biblical thinker trying to decide, okay, I, I don't speak as if I'm voting for this guy because he fully encapsulates what Jesus is like. No, I vote for this guy because he might get closer than the other guy. The other guy was closer than I'd vote for him. I don't think like partisan people here. We think prophetically. Like people who are going to have to suffer under the government. It's an all-encompassing authority that Jesus has. And we can submit to flawed governments like the one we live in if we trust that a good and perfect God rules over all things. Because he is sovereign, he ordains whatever happens. It is a part of his plan and if you reject the authorities that he puts in place, you reject him. 
I know of no other way to read Romans 13, 1 and 2. I challenge you, if you disagree with that, to go home and read it, copy it, write it down on a notepad, and just let it sit there and stew for a little bit. Paul and King Agrippa did not see eye to eye, but it was still King Agrippa to whom he spoke. And it was still King Agrippa who'd be a part of the plan for Paul to die in Rome. The next one we can summarize up. This, the second reason. So not just is our governments raised up by God, but they are God's imperfect momentary gift. He, he never claims to give us a perfect gift here in this government. It is an imperfect momentary temporary, this worldly only gift to make sure that evil doesn't have free reign. He says, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval. For he is God's, good, sir, he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God and avenger who carries out wrath on the wrongdoer. Now remember that Paul is writing this about a government who's going to behead him eventually. They don't always do their job. They don't always do their job. Their job is to make it so that we can obey God peacefully in this land. Their job is to make sure that we can come here and worship and not get shot at. Their job is to protect the border so that we can live quietly in our homes and teach our families how to worship and pray and, and love the Lord. That's their job. Do they always do that? No, sometimes they aim for us. <laughs> but generally speaking, God's reason and intentionality behind governments is that they would do good for God's people. This is why speed limits exist, right? I mean, just something even as simple as the speed limit is a proof and evidence of God's grace. What happens? I know because I speed a lot. Um, Driving down Ovilla Road, you see this Ovilla PD sitting on the side. What, what does everybody do when they see that car there? <laughs> like, I'm just, you know, just kind of, and it's a me. Why? Because there's a fear, a proper fear. Speeding, I'm doing wrong. By doing wrong, I could hurt somebody. People smarter than me decided that there needs to be an appropriate speed limit so that I don't careen and kill some mom and her family in a minivan. That speed limit, as much as I might hate it, is evidence of God's good grace that I can't go 75 on Westmoreland. So don't tell me that the government doesn't do good. There's plenty of evidences that it does good. It doesn't always do as it should. And here's the, here's the problem that I, I think that we're facing. When we totally totally wipe out and just reject the government. You may be guilty of failing to show thanks to the God who gave that government for your good. As long as there are laws that exist that protect your good, you have something to thank God for through his government that he set up. Something. I thank God that there are laws against people breaking into my house or picking up my kids without my permission or stealing my food from my garden. I thank God for that. 
That's a good gift from the Lord. Guess what? Some of those laws even exist in China. There were places that I could cross safely. Not many, but there were places I could cross the street safely without fear of getting hit by a car. Why? Because God had graciously allowed it to be so. That was his means of provision so that my family, like the little ducklings we were, could cross the street without fear of getting plowed over. My friends, even the small things in life that are from God deserve thanksgiving, don't they? It's so funny. I'm so confused sometimes by the way Texans speak. On the one hand, we live on the greatest country on earth. And on the other hand, the government's gone to hell in the handbasket. Which is it? Do we live in a country that God has graciously given laws to protect our safety and well-being? If not, then stop saying that America's one of the greatest countries on earth because it's not true. That I've been in African countries where there's better life then if that's the case? Or has the government gone to hell in the handbasket? The reality is, is I think that as the American church, we're failing to thank God appropriately for the evidence and the residue of his grace that are still there. Amen. You don't have to like this sermon, it's fine. It's a great sermon. <laughs> I have an optional resignation note to read on the back here. So what's our responsibility in light of all that? Paul gives us two, and I have to summarize because time is up. I took more time on this sermon because I knew I'd probably hack off some people. Application number one, pay your taxes. And all God's people said... <laughs> exactly. Pay your taxes. I mean, it's, I, I, I remember watching this preacher in Kansas. He became very famous for telling people that it wasn't God's will for them to pay taxes. Like, dude's never read Romans 13, has he? Somebody tell this dude that Romans is in the New Testament. Somebody open it up to Romans 13 because it says pay taxes. Why? Because it's God's good gift to his people to preserve life and peace. And it's from God. The government is established by God. How you pay your taxes, just like everything else in life, reveals whether you have faith or a lack of faith in God. How you pay your taxes whether you, shows whether you submit to or reject the authority of God. Our king of the universe who made the cattle on a thousand hills, who made all the people who are in leadership, who could sustain us by zapping our bank account full of coins every day, said, pay your taxes. Why? I don't know. Take it up with him. We pay our taxes, but it's not just, okay, okay, fine, I'll pay my taxes. We're also to have a disposition of respect. It's not just the action of paying taxes to have a heart that's willing to do so. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed. Then he goes beyond money. Respect to whom respect is owed and honor to whom honor is owed. Do you know what that means? It means this church ain't ever going to be chanting, let's go Brandon. It means this church is going to respond boldly against 
the sin of disrespecting people in authority. Whether they're people we vote for or not. It's not just the wooden action of, okay, fine, I'll pay my taxes. No, it's respecting, honoring your president, your senate, your representatives, your Supreme Court, your state governor. It doesn't even matter who they're going to be. I don't know who the next governor is going to be. I will say this, whichever of these two candidates makes it to the governorship of Texas is, God, is by God's authority because he's sovereign. And we honor. Does that sound like anything else that you have to say? Honor to whom honor is given. Respect to whom respect is given. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Jesus said it. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Comes from the mouth of Jesus himself. The mouth of Jesus himself to whom the nations are like a drop from a bucket according to Isaiah 40. Yeah, Isaiah 40, 15, I encourage all of you to pull it out, frame it, highlight it, smile about it because it's really good news. How can we be subject to the governing authorities, rejecting what they do that disobeys God's will and being willing to suffer for it? How do we be subject to governing authorities? Well, because we know that the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are counted as the dust on the scales of God. Yeah, they're not going to screw things up. They may try. I've never seen dust be able to move my living room couch. I've never seen a drop from a bucket be able to wash away my flower beds. I don't think the nations can change the will of God. I don't think presidents have much hope from thwarting the purposes of God. I can live with that. Come what may. Resurrect Queen Mary for that matter, right? We've done it before. We've lived, we lived under bloody, bloody Mary before, right? And we still here <laughs> because guess what? Even bloody Mary, Caesar, Nero, Hitler, Nebuchadnezzar, you name them, Cyrus, they can't change the will of God because God is the only sovereign king. And one day every senator, every president, every king, every tyrant, every parliament will bow the knee to one and only king. And confess that Jesus is Lord. In the meantime, I'll show due respect and live honorably and prophetically, wisely, under the reign of my good King, Jesus Christ. Until the day every government's a footnote in history and I get to live on an earth free from political parties, free from national governments, because it will be under the government of King Jesus alone. Father God, I pray that you give us faith. Father, I pray that you will, uh, Lord, make our hearts willing to receive your word. Father, there's some moments in scripture that we want to give nuance and believe that it's not so, but Father, I don't know what else to do with Romans 13. I pray you protect me as I go off this stage and just pray, Father, you will help us to live willingly respectfully, reverentially, and honorably in this really tricky and complex world of godless governments until the day that King Jesus comes back and sets up his government forever and ever. We pray this in your son's name, amen.